Hey, this is Larry Wilmore, and welcome back to Black on the Air. You're listening to my podcast, and happy post-Thanksgiving to everyone. I hope you enjoyed uh, your turkey day, <laughs> which is what I call it, or whatever you did. It's a difficult year because normally people during this holiday uh, get together with family and all that, and this is a tough one, man. So many people couldn't do it. Some people did in defiance of it, but I hope everybody had a safe Thanksgiving and a full one. As many problems as we have out in the world, and we know we have a problem, a lot of them, a lot of them, I do personally like to be thankful for many of the good things that we have in this life, too. It's my personal thing, I think having a sense of gratitude in your life, wherever you can find it, is the type of balance that you need just to keep your attitude straight. And it's always, always good to have gratitude for things. And sometimes it can be the smallest of things, but gratitude is one of the keys to balance and happiness because there's enough <laughs> crap out there to try to get us um, off of that. I'm not going to focus on that crap today. I'm going to instead offer you this really fun conversation with my buddy, Ken Quapis. Ken is just one of the, man, he's one of the most talented directors out there who whatever he does there's this sheen of like creativity, brilliance, you know, there's something smart, but there's always something human in Ken's work, always something human. And go back and watch the stuff. He did the pilot to the Larry Sanders, Bernie Mac show, The Office, um, other shows, and there's movies from uh, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, is that the name of it? Follow That Bird's original, he said, she said, all kinds of movies in his canon and uh, many more current ones too. I can't remember the Alaska one. Was it Alaska? They do. <laughs> Sorry, Ken, if you're listening to this. But look, guys, the book is what I really want to do is direct by Ken Quapis, Lessons from a Life Behind the Camera. And there's so much great philosophy in it, too. And if you, by the way, for all my um, showbiz nerds out there who want to be in the business, listen to Ken's advice in this book and some of his words of wisdom. It's so good. But even if you're not, if you're just interested being able to fly on the wall, the passion and the quiet perseverance that that Ken has is something to be admired and modeled. So anyhow, my conversation with Ken is coming up and we're not going to focus on any of the negative stuff this weekend, you guys. And I think you know what I'm talking about, but we're going to get back to that next week. Next week also is the very last episode of Wilmore on Peacock. It was a special series, not intended to be an ongoing series. And it's been so much fun to do. Cheers to the people at Peacock for putting it on, especially during a pandemic and all this stuff. My boy, Dan Shear, Jen Brown, everybody um, over there making, you know, making this special special. Just so much thanks to you guys. We have one more to do. You know, we're going to have a lot of fun with this. And who knows, this may be something that can come back in another form. We'll see. It would be great to do. I would love to. Once again, if you don't have Peacock, it's free. Go ahead and download it. Shows like my show, and they have a lot of other great classic stuff as well as good news stuff, too. So download Peacock, you guys. And in the meantime, just so you know about me, um, performing, as you know, is one of the things that I do. But the other thing I, that I do is to develop television shows and sometimes films. So I'll be putting my energies back into that more full time. I have some projects I'm working on right now. 
I have some new collaborations, people that I'm working with, and I'll be uh, announcing some of those things, you know, in the next coming months. I think you guys will be excited about some of the things I got on my back burner right now. I'm always looking to do new things and put new stories out there. So, and some surprises too. Got a couple of surprise things that I'm working on. So that's it, guys. Like I said, happy post-Thanksgiving. Hope you enjoyed my talk with uh, Mr. Quapis, and um, we'll be back right after this. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Uh, man, this is a very special interview for me. This is one of my favorite people in the world. Is I feel one of the most talented people to do what he does. Uh, he's a very humble man at the same time, you know. And he has a book out that I think is really good. Uh, but what I really want to do is direct lessons from a life behind the camera. He's the one and only director, Ken Quapis. And my buddy, hey, Ken, welcome to Black on the Air. Thank you, Larry. It's great to hear you and see you and be a guest. Yes, Ken, I'm so happy you agreed to do this. I, I just want to tell the audience, it is both, and I think you probably feel this way too, There, it's a privilege a joy and a burden to work in showbiz, you know, <laughs> it's all of those things. And I feel like getting to work with people like you is such a privilege because, you know, your passion for the work, your dedication, you're just a mensch, you know, you're such a good person, but, you know, you're one of those fiercely just great guys too. Great, what I mean, great is like in all aspects of it. I'm giving you all this praise now because I want people <laughs> to know how awesome the talent is. Not just the talent, but the human being that is called Ken Quapis. There you go. I will, you know, what I will say is it is so easy at times to forget what a joyful experience it can yes. be to, to be in the entertainment, to tell stories yeah. and to direct. So every once in a while, I have to like kind of pinch myself and say, wow, this yeah. is actually, this is something remarkable that we get to do. Tell stories. Yeah. You know? And you have some great reflections on that in your book. Uh, what's uh, for people that follow my podcast, sometimes I have these podcasts are are really for me sometimes, you know, but I, I do. There are a lot of people that are trying to make it in showbiz and want to do what you do, Ken, or what I do. And I, I think it's great to have conversations about the business in general. Some of it is craft, which is nice, but some of it is philosophical. And uh, I love what's great about Ken's book. And Ken has had such an interesting career because he's at the been at the beginning of a lot of things. You know, the Larry Sanders show was like for me, when I first saw Ken on the map, I mean, he, of course, The Office, The Bernie Mac Show, but Follow That Bird even as a movie, <laughs> as a way to come out of that box, you know, working with somebody like Jim Henson in the beginning. I mean, that's such an interesting place in history. You know, some of the things that you've done, you, you've you've been a marker for a lot of of interesting things in the business, as well as put your mark on things, Ken. You know, I feel very uh, grateful for many reasons, but one of the one thing is Jim Henson was one of the first people I worked with in yeah. the business, and I was you know very fortunate, kind of yeah. right out of the gate, getting a job to direct 
Jim Henson's Muppets. And and one of the things I'll share with you is that when I met Jim, I, it was one of the, you know, it was a significant job interview for me, but I decided to throw caution to the winds and 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 say pretty much up front that I had no experience directing puppets. Yeah, I didn't well, know. I, I would think that's a very short list anyway. You know, <laughs> it'd be easy to verify if you had, I think. <laughs> Looking back, oh, you did you've done puppets. What was that thing? <laughs> but he was he was super gracious. Yeah. And he said, all you gotta do is, you know, talk to the puppeteers like they're actors. Yeah. And uh and he only, it's so funny, I, I, I don't remember a lot of the meeting except for mm-hmm. a couple of things. And one of them was, is he made one demand. Yeah. And he said that when, on the first day of shooting, Sesame Street presents Follow Them Birdie, wanted me to gather the whole crew, you know, mm-hmm. 30, 40, however many people were there, just have everyone stand together and raise one arm in the air, raise a hand in the air and hold it there for a solid minute. Yeah. And he and and I didn't know where he was going with it, but he wanted to make sure that the crew members were sensitive to the fact that puppeteers, you know, are often asked to just keep their puppets up there far too long <laughs> yes. while you're doing like yes. umpteen number right. of camera and lighting adjustments. So, so I, but uh, and I did. I said, "You got it." On day one, yeah, <laughs> a lot of people with their hand in the air. So I feel like follow that bird, uh, which is a really cool story of Big Bird kind of finding home again or where he belongs or that type of thing. But that movie is such a great metaphor for showbiz itself. And the fact that you started out with that here, uh, let's describe you before that, you know, here, you know, as the type of filmmaker you want it to be like the, maybe, <laughs> you know, the type of, of visions that you had. I love that you start your book with American graffiti, one of my favorite movies too, you know, and you talk about epiphanies and that sort of thing. Uh, was that was watching that movie American Graffiti? Was that the your first time thinking, "Wow, films are a little bit more than what I thought they were"? Well, you know, the funny thing is, and I think about that. I've thought about that film so much over the years. Yeah. But my, I remember mainly when I first saw it that it seemed so uh, unflashy, unassuming. Yeah, it seemed like it wasn't like a cool art film. Yeah, it wasn't. You know, and I and I, but it sort of grabbed me in some kind of deeper way, and it, yeah. and I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out why I kept thinking about it. Yeah, and, and I certainly I write in the book about that wonderful moment where Richard Dreyfuss's character does have an epiphany when he realizes that the schlubby guy working at the radio station on the outskirts of town is in fact Wolfman Jack. Yeah. But I guess what really struck me about it was the the it's kind of quiet. It has this kind of, to me, it's like a majestic film and a very quiet, it operates very quietly. So. Yeah. And American Graffiti, for those of you that haven't seen it, please go back and see it. It was a huge hit at the time. And yet the movie was was forward uh, looking in many ways, though, you know, it took from maybe a lot of indie films at the time, but they didn't have the type of broad appeal that American Graffiti had. I think part of it was the music in it mm-hmm. and it hit. America right at the time when they were ready for a little nostalgia, I think. I think the film the film came out in the fall of 73. I don't remember exactly when Nixon resigned, but I always yeah, think it was a year film. later. It was it was right around then or it was a year later. A year yeah. later. And I just but mm-hmm. I also I always think of it as being like something that people were really yearning for, a kind of a look back, a kind of going back to a, a, a I don't know, maybe just a less turbulent moment. 
in American history. And of course, that, you know, it's it set in the fall of 63 before um, Kennedy's assassination. So, yeah, I just think that the film just gets richer as the years go on. Yeah, there's something about, uh, to talk about films for a second, that movie, there were a lot of uh, films and books, you know, at that time, and I'll call it white people problems, you know, <laughs> but uh, that were covering a lot of uh, young white people angst about mm-hmm. where am I going? What am I doing? Him? I, I mean, black people, we were just trying to get our rights at that time. So that's why I say white people problem. But American Graffiti, what I, what I like about it and why I like talking about it with you is that it did some things differently for a mainstream picture. Altman did a, a little bit of it at the same time too, but it didn't use plot to tell its story in the way that most movies would. And you've kind of done that in your career over and over in different ways, you know, where where character is the thing that is the lifeblood of the storytelling. You know, the plot's important, but character's where you really get revelations, right? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I haven't, I've never really made that connection. I'm, I'm glad you're making it. But when I think about a film like, you know, he's just not that into you, which has no plot. Yeah. And, and all it is is nine characters who kind of keep making the same kinds of mistakes yes. over and over again. And, and the, you know, the, the goal for me as a director was simply how can I keep you as a viewer interested in nine different people? And maybe, mm-hmm. you know, thinking back on American Graffiti, there's a lot of characters in that. That's picture. right. Yeah. And I related to all of them. And obviously there are four main guys. There's, you know, uh, Toad, uh, Richard <laughs> Rice's character. Yes. Why am I, Charlie Martin Smith. Everybody. Charlie Martin Smith, yeah. He was but, great. Uh, there's you know, Ron Howard's character and mm-hmm. Paul Lamad's character, the dragster, the, the sure. road. But there's a lot of secondary characters that I find very relatable as well. So I think yeah. that, again, one of the many things that George Lucas did, George Lucas and the screenwriters did so well is just a great juggling act of keeping a lot of people compelling over the course of the story. And it's yeah. also got this kind of perfect, I mean, this kind of very classical structure. It's one night. You know, and it has this kind of very simple idea at the beginning of the yeah. night, the two friends, the two main guys, Dreyfus and Ron Howard, one guy's going to college, one guy's not. By the by the morning, they flip. It's yeah. so simple. It's it like really simple. is. It, it's such a lesson in storytelling for those of you that are writers or directors out there. I was having a conversation with someone I'm working with, and I'm like, there are different ways to tell a story. You don't have to do it the same way all the time. Your plot can be the driver of that story. But if you make a distinction between plot and story, and this one of the distinctions I make is that the plot are the events that tell the story, but the story is the journey that the character takes, you know. And sometimes the events uh, can just be life, you know, but it's that journey. And it's what's interesting about American Graffiti, it's Dreyfus' journey, you know, <laughs> in that. And the events are just the things that typically happen on any night. They're not special to that night, you know. I would say that, again, this may sound a little highfalutin, but, you know, you look back at some of the great novels of the past century, like Ulysses. I mean, basically, yes. one guy walking around, and, and, a lot of, and, one guy, and a lot of it is literally just walking up and down the streets of Dublin yes. and observing things. Yes. And, and so, in a way, Dreyfus is just it's kind the of journey. around. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the journey story, yes, which is one of the prime yeah, stories, absolutely. yeah. And uh, one of your other uh, inciting incidents, I'll call it in the Ken Kwapis career, <laughs> uh, is another one of my favorite films, but completely opposite in its ways, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, you know what? It, it's so funny because 
there's so many memorable moments in that film. Yeah. And the whole the film had such an effect on me. But when I started writing about it, I I singled out like maybe the simplest shot in the entire picture. Yeah. It's just a shot of Hal's eye, so-called eye. And and it just sort of inspired me to start thinking about Hal as a character and how that character develops. And and um and again, what I discovered in writing the chapter was how emotionally involved I was with this, with a computer, with mm-hmm. Hal, and and how it sort of flies in the face of what most people think about when they think about Stanley Kubrick. You know, they think of this kind of cold, formal, this kind of, you know, mm-hmm. very technically minded or, or in terms of the content, you know, very, you know, satiric or, you know. But I actually find Hal to be an incredibly moving character mm-hmm. and, and certainly... Uh, you know, the the end of his story, I, I find particularly uh, upsetting that, you know, basically he's being put down. I mean, he needs to be put mm-hmm. down. He killed the crew. But but uh, his, his, his death is very powerful. <laughs> yes, he got the death penalty. Yeah. He got the death penalty. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no, I, and again, one of the things I tried to do in the book mm-hmm. it, it, uh, was look for the the small things that really, mm-hmm. you know, make a story special, not like the big famous shot, not the, you know, the, right. the most flamboyant shot, but the simple thing, you know, Richard Dreyfus, one simple close-up of him reacting to Wolfman Jack or one, mm-hmm. you know, a close-up of Hal's eye when he realizes that the crew members are betraying him, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, there's so many, so many awesome shots in that film, but this one seemed like such a key for me. So I wanted to just kind of, play, you know, work, off of that simple shot and see where I could go. What's fascinating about Kubrick, it seems, as a director, I feel like he found a lot of the film while he was shooting, which is so confounding to me, mm-hmm. like when you look at how brilliant he is. But he also tortured his crew because of that, oh. <laughs> you know, too. You know, you hear these stories, and, and I, I don't, you know, I don't know anyone who's worked with him or worked with him, but, mm-hmm. you know, you hear these stories about um the simplest action, you know, let's say, you know, The Shining, you know, Scatman Crothers walking across the street or something mm-hmm. like that and like having to do like 30 takes of it. Yeah. And the question is, well, what what is he really getting at by doing this simple thing over and over and over again? And mm-hmm. I guess the only thing I can imagine is that he, he wants the actor to almost like end up on automatic pilot with no yeah. sense of, you know, not thinking at all, just sort of in some strange trance-like Mm-hmm. Uh, place but um but needless to say i've never had the luxury of doing no. like three takes of someone crossing a street exactly <laughs> exactly yeah it's funny because kubrick is a uh film student's dream you know <laughs> like you could do all that stuff and the technical part of it and everything and it's so not the way showbiz works is a kubrick film you cannot take any kubrick film In fact, I don't even know how he was able to do the things that he did when you think about how showbiz works. I I mean, it seems like um, people just sign on with no sense of when it will end. (laughs) Yes, yes. And I do actually, I take it back. I did work with somebody who worked with Kubrick. I worked in in the Czech Republic and I worked with a London-based sound recordist on a film. Mm-hmm. And he worked on the film A Clockwork Orange. And he I said, Well, you gotta tell me <laughs> a couple Absolutely. of good stories. And he did tell me one night where the crew got it was a night shoot and the crew was, you know, the crew arrived and Kubrick mm-hmm. sort of sat in the middle of the location, like on an apple box or in a little chair, and just sat there for about 45 minutes thinking about 
what to do. Mm-hmm. And finally, he called the first AD over, and there's a little whispering going on. And then the AD stood up and said, "Okay, that's a wrap." <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that was that's it. it. That was it. He, he didn't have a good enough idea to pursue, so he just sent everybody home. So Unbelievable. <laughs> so, yeah, I I think the Kubrick thing was. I think it's not that he uh, had an idea of something, and until you got it, he was satisfied. I think he didn't know. And he wanted to, he wanted you to help him find it. Or by all the takes, he would go, oh, that, yeah, that looks good. Or I don't know, one of those 30 takes is going to be it, but I don't know. Like, I don't think he was as in control as people think looking uh, back. I, I got, that's a great point. I have to, I'm going to think about that. I think Kubrick created a lot of puzzle pieces for him to mm. then, he was a master uh, putting together of a puzzle, but he didn't know what those pieces were going to be most of the time. You know, like he would start with something, go, I don't know, you know, but he's, but because of his presence and everything, you think he's brilliant. I'm not giving him what he wants. But I think the reality was he didn't know what he wanted. He was just waiting for, for you to give him something. That actually is such a great, I love, I hope that's the case. I hope that in a way he would arrive on the set and whether or not everything was planned out in his head, that he was able to walk on the set and just see something that he had thought about and say, okay, we're going to go in this direction now. So. That's that would be that I think would be a cool discovery. Um, but anyways, I you know, for me, that film um, was such a I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I'm growing up in a small town in southern Illinois. And, you know, mm-hmm. they, there weren't a lot of foreign films that played in my hometown. And there weren't a lot of I mean, if there were offbeat films, they usually came to no, neighboring St. Louis. They didn't come to Belleville, Illinois. So when 2001 mm-hmm. played. I, you know, I, I knew it was going to be a, a you know, a, a film about space exploration, but I had no clue that it was going to be such an odd film. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you know, I, to this day, I, I would, I would say the the moment that monolith appears for the first time in that in the the den of those you know kind of prehistoric primates, that was like one of the oddest. I mean, I was like, what is happening here? Why? <laughs> it was like it was one of the strangest things I'd ever seen. Yeah. So I mean, just the just the. Uh, the shock of that, I carry that to this day. It's funny because I, at the same time, the movie that that made me, I think, one of the first things uh, that made me want to think about, I guess, showbiz in a certain sense was Planet of the Apes, which came out around the same time, which right. also had human beings in ape oh, costumes. Yeah. But to me, I was like, oh, this is clearly about racism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, get your paws off of you dirty, stinking <laughs> ape. <laughs> Like, I was taking that for a funny big Oh, hold on a second. There's something else going on in this movie. I, that, I love that film. I, that, that, that was another great experience. And, and uh, that's right. That came out, I think, the same year. I think, I think so, around the same time. Because I think they may have been up for the same makeup awards or it, something like that. Both good ape outfits. You which, know? Is, which is interesting. <laughs> when did you think that you could actually do directing as a profession like because sure you're interested in film and all that but it takes a leap for somebody to think that they can do it as a job again going back to growing up in the midwest i i knew i didn't know anyone in show business i didn't know how one pursued it i knew that you mm-hmm. could go to film school i knew you know obviously i i fell in love with films like american graffiti so i knew mm-hmm. you know george the lore about george lucas going to right. usc etc and um but still, it made it. I had no sense of how one got in a toe in the door, let alone a you know a job. 
Mm-hmm. And um, but I do think that early on, I mean, around the same time, 1968, uh, you know, seeing films, I started to get a sense that there were, you know, there was somebody behind the scenes pulling the strings or someone making choices that would make mm-hmm. a film either more or less interesting. And and I pr- pretty quickly just thought, wow, I I, I want to be that person. I didn't know what. That's all I could tell you. I don't know. Didn't wouldn't know how it, how you'd go about doing it. But I love the idea of being the you know the person behind the scenes. You know, it wasn't until I mean I went to Northwestern as an undergrad and studied film. And Northwestern University it was a wonderful you know experience. But it was definitely the focus was on documentaries and mm-hmm. experimental films. The focus was on uh, politics. The focus was on you know sort of a pretty deep dish theory. There was nothing that prepared anyone to go out and be in the entertainment business, but it was mm-hmm. fantastic for me. It was, I, I, I feel so grateful that I, I started there. Then I went out to USC, which was almost the opposite. Not that they didn't have great history and criticism teachers, but you know, USC was focused entirely. USC was like, so kind of saw itself probably still sees itself as a little microcosm of the business. Sure. So suddenly it was like, oh, oh I get it. So this is, this, is the, this is the flip side of that coin. Mm-hmm. You know, like at Northwestern, you know, we're staying up after midnight watching Godard films. And, right. you know, out at USC, we're learning what an agent does. Yes, <laughs> yes. And everybody's saying, how do you get an agent? How do you get a job? <laughs> yeah. But the uh, but still, uh, you know, it, it's different now. I but at the time I was at USC in the early 1980s, mm-hmm. um, it was still unclear what you did. I mean, I, yeah. you know, and, and I think that the, you know, I didn't fancy my, I didn't imagine myself being the guy go to direct the Muppets. Mm-hmm. I probably, you know, imagined myself doing something, you know, cool and odd, like a David Lynch film. But when, mm-hmm. but I, I think I was smart about one thing and that when that opportunity presented itself i didn't retreat i didn't say you know mm-hmm. what i'm gonna hold out and make my you know my passion project before i do anything no i, I just felt like no you know what i want to get in i want to get in mm-hmm. i want to play i want to learn i didn't know what i you know, I'm, you know i'm just learning on my feet and i write about this a lot in the book i definitely came out of you know, after two two film school experiences i still didn't quite know how to talk to actors Yeah. I had to puzzle that out mm-hmm. on the job. Still working on that, but I think I'm doing pretty good finally. But yeah, but um, but yeah, no. I, I again, there's. Uh, I, I don't want to say there was any um, sort of magic moment. I just sort of realized that if there was a door open, go through it. Yeah, unless you're being unless there was you know unless you're being asked to do something like mm-hmm. reprehensible, you know, some something offensive. But no, if there's an opportunity, do it. Yeah, you have a lot of nice words of wisdom and comfort, I think, for people who want to be in this business and starting out. One of the things I wanted to ask you, and it's related to this, too, is like, I think when you're starting out, you don't really know what you can do. You know, Mm -hmm. you have an idea of what you would like to do, but you don't know until you're in the arena. And many times you kind of have to bluff your way into something and somehow pull it off while you're doing it to get to the other side of it. And that's a very precarious thing. I've been in that position many times, but there's something about the arena that has pulled the best out of me. 
of being mm-hmm. in that situation. And you talk about using the word panic in your book, you know. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that type of thing, it never really goes away. It just takes on different forms sometimes. Like there's always, for instance, a story we haven't tackled yet. So, you know, we're in the middle of it. I don't know how we're going to tackle this, you know. Right. But talk, can you talk about that when you're at the beginning of your career? How do you, like, how do you even manage yourself and just exercise the doubt demons and that sort of thing? I mean, know? I think that, I mean, they don't go away, but I think mm-hmm. that I, I do feel that, I mean, panic is something that I experience a lot, but it's, mm-hmm. but I've become a friend of it. I've become a, is that the right way to put it? I've become a friend yes. with panic. And, and, and it's hard to of, imagine Ken Kwap is panicking. <laughs> <by the way. laughs> oh my God. Wait, Ken's panicking. <laughs> no, 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 but, but, no, I, no, as opposed to, I'm not yeah. a panic merchant. I'm, yes. I, I just go off quietly in the yes, corner. Yes, I like that distinction. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's very yes. important. Panic, panic is a condition that comes upon you, but you're not out selling panic. No, no, I'm not, yes. I'm not trying yes. to inflict my panic on the Exactly, but exactly. The, but I do, I, I pretty quickly came to um, realize that things do work out generally in a very positive way. If you just mm-hmm. kind of, even with your panic, if you can also, with the other part of your brain, say, okay, the process, trust the process. Mm-hmm. And there's like a thousand different <laughs> times a day where I just say, you know, trust the process to myself. And I would say that the other, uh, the process in this case is actually understanding that panic's going to kind of move some idea around in your head right. that's going to come to the fore that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. Right. It'll unlodge something, right? Yeah. And and by the way, that not that you want to be in a state of panic. And I you know, <laughs> right. and I'm not and I'm not nor I'm not usually in that state, but it's sort of like you you also don't want to be so you know cool as a cucumber that you're not able to sort yes. of you know stay open for you know unexpected things to hit you. Yeah. And and that's one of the things I talk about not only in the book, but like when I'm talking to young directors, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you want to be thoroughly prepared and then you want to walk on the set and be thoroughly ready to throw your plan out the window. Wow. That combination can seem so daunting, right? Well, it, it, but it is though, you've always got your plan in your back pocket. Yes. But, you know, but I've seen, I've, I can't think of it a perfect example right off the top of my head, but I've, there's so many times where I have a, you know, I have the blocking in my head and I, yeah. I'm, you know, I feel like I'm very good at being able to pre-visualize things. And then I come in and one actor says, well, I wouldn't go there. Yes. And suddenly I have to go, well, okay, either I can impose my plan on them. <laughs> yes. Say, no, but you haven't read my shot list. You're supposed to go over there. Yes. <laughs> or, or I go, well, wait, let me just think about what this actor is saying and let me see if the adjustment will lead to something better than what I came up with. I've already, uh-huh. again, I've always got the plan in my back pocket I can rely on. But I love the idea of mm-hmm. letting, you know, kind of trying to keep open to things that, uh, su- you know, have some surprise. It's got to be tough as a director, too, because as the director, you're supposed to be the one with the vision. Some people see the director as the taskmaster, you know, and there has to be a combination of I wouldn't say imposing your will, but let's say uh, uh, a certain type of a th- demanding of authority. Mm-hmm. But if you, I think if you're good, um, by the way, unless you're, you're brilliant, you just have it all in your head, you know what you're doing and you don't have to listen to everybody, but that's rare. But I think if you're going to be good and grow, you have to also be collaborative mm-hmm. and lead at the same time. Like, how do you balance that? You know, where you're, you're listening to people, but at the same time saying, but 
right. you have to follow me because that's a tough thing, especially with certain actors. Yeah, I know it's such a great question, and I haven't thought about it quite this way. And mm-hmm. so I'm glad you're asking it. Like if you're, and this really, you know, there's so much opportunity for directors working in series now. Mm-hmm. More yeah. often than not, you're working on a series that is someone else's vision. Period. Yes. Okay. So in a weird way, it's it's like, yeah, as a director, you want to have a vision, but you don't want to be the person who's coming into, you know, doing an episode and the eighth season of some show and, and, and announce, well, here's my vision for this episode. <laughs> it's like that's not gonna, no one's going to want to hear right. that. Right. But right. I would say that what you can. Sorry, do, Grey's Anatomy. This is not exactly. taking place in a hospital anymore. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. I have a vision of how yes. this operation should go. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but they, but I do think that what's fair, and again, you don't need to say this out loud, but for a director to say to him or herself, I am the designated storyteller. Mm-hmm. You know, they everyone here may have done this series for years, but I'm the one they hired to tell this story at this time. So you ha- it gives you a certain, uh, it reminds you that you you are not only free to assert your authority, but you have to. Otherwise, you're just going to be phoning in. Now, that the flip side, the collaboration, of, of course, is you need to kind of respect the fact that, look, at if you're doing an episode of a series that's you know been on the air for eight seasons, they're clearly doing something right. You know, you so you have to mm-hmm. kind of respect that. They found a lot of great things along the way, but at the same time, I promise every crew and cast, you know, that want fresh ideas. You just, it, again, it's just sort of a funny dance mm-hmm. you have to do to kind of make people realize that you know you respect them, but they have to remember that you're you've been hired to be the storyteller on this one. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings, maybe a getaway with the whole family. Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. And Ken, since you've done both television and film, how daunting is it that just that difference? I feel like in a film, so much of the burden is on you and the responsibility, you know, for the complete vision of this but in television, you're right. There's usually a vision there. If you're coming into a show, your job is really to make sure you don't fuck up more than anything else, right? <laughs> I think. That, I mean, I I do feel like. I mean, again, one. I feel fortunate that I've been able to, as you said at the beginning, yes, help to set, launch some stuff, set the visual language or yeah. something, and to yeah, and just sort of and, help create right. tone and and stuff like that. But I would also. I mean, also, I've been on. I've certainly been on shows early enough in in the run where the tone is not clear and and yeah. and you're kind of being even if you weren't the person they enlisted to do the pilot for instance you yeah i know you hear this you know phrase a lot course correction you yeah. hear often. <laughs> so, yeah. but i would say that i would say that there've been more than a few times where i've been invited to be on something where mm-hmm. uh, they didn't know that they needed they 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 didn't know what was possible tonally mm. And so mm-hmm. a director can help, you know, kind of again make an adjustment that opens up new avenues for people. I think the difference, you know, is is uh, on a feature. 
I mean, I, you know what, the truth is, is I've worked on feature films where the writers are, you know, the writer is super, you know, just as important as on a show, uh-huh. but oftentimes the way the business is structured, you know, the writers are long gone. Yeah. The they film. often get diminished in the feature world, unfortunately. Yeah. Totally. And and, um, and sometimes that happens to directors in the television world, unfortunately. There's the, it, it's the, the it is yeah. like the flip. I, I mean, I do feel like part of the challenge for, and I talk to young directors about this all the time, is part of the challenge of doing episodic work well, or uh, to do it well, is you really kind of need to be a bit of a psychologist when it comes mm-hmm. to the showrunner or the creator. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. part of your job is to figure out, just to kind of figure out how that person ticks and what they're mm-hmm. thinking. And, and, and again, figure, and I, I, I wrote about this in the book, just figure out where your skills and your instincts overlap with that person. And once you mm-hmm. find that, that could, that's a super, that's going to be a super collaboration. Yeah. I thought one of the more interesting, by the way, an entire book about the Larry Sanders show would be an interesting <laughs> book because Gary was such an interesting person. When I say interesting, he was so complicated in so many different levels. You know, he was one of the few comedians who kept performing during the strike at the comedy store. And a lot of comedians didn't like that. You know, it was yeah. very controversial at the time, yet he was still admired by those same comedians too. So he had this, not, I wouldn't say love hate, but it was it wasn't always rosy with Gary, <laughs> you know. People, well, you know. yeah, I mean, I, I would say that you know, the for me, the the great opportunity working on that show and helping launch the show was, you know, when I realized, and I realized right away when I met Gary that mm-hmm. this was a super personal project. This yeah. was not like I have yeah. an idea for a show that's going to be funny. This was right. like a, a, this was a it's like a self examination. This it's was on the couch. using television. Yeah. yeah, this was using te- television series as the couch, and 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 so part of the that was also the dangerous part of it too. Yeah. Is that on some level, he wanted a he wanted a show that would kind of expose aspects of himself, Gary himself. <laughs> but then he didn't like what he found. <laughs> yeah. And he would blame others for that, right? He would say, yeah, yeah. It was like, hey, I'm, I'm, just, a li- I'm just a messenger here. <laughs> You're the reason I'm an asshole, right? How dare you call me that? Yeah. And yet he deserves credit for oh for pulling that out of him too. Yeah. Oh, no, I, absolutely. Yeah. And and I, and I also feel like, you know, there have been so many shows since then of an equally comedies mainly of an equally personal nature. Yeah. You know, so I feel like that show was a real harbinger. You know, I worked on, um, I didn't help launch the show, but I worked on the show one Mississippi with Tig Notaro. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, yeah. very personal autobiographical, yeah. you know, autobiographical material, but you know, I feel like you can trace a line back to, you know, Larry Sanders. Absolutely. Some of the tonally, more challenging shows right the half hour shows but the uh, but no I, but the truth is that you know one thing i did not mention in the book was gary had um come off of doing you know a kind of spectacular multi-camera show about you know about comedy you know, yeah the, his meta show the gary show, yeah. it's gary shandling show yeah. gary shandling show but mm-hmm. what he had not done he had not worked in uh, a single camera format he had not mm-hmm. done a, you know, a film style show mm-hmm. so at the beginning of the show he was very uh, he was very open to mm-hmm. me because i had film background and mm-hmm. he really wanted a film look to the show so on that level it was a uh, i just I, again i didn't mention it in the, in the chapter but it was really i had a it was fun to sort of help set that style yeah. because he was very you know he was 
he had some really interesting and, and unorthodox requests of me yeah. you know, in terms of the style of the show at times, but he also let me have a pretty free hand at the beginning. That's awesome. And looking back at the show, you're right. It it was so revolutionary because, you know, most popular shows were on the network in those days, you know, for a cable show to be one of the top comedies was huge. It was so different back then. And it's a single camera. Everything was in multicam in those days. And the layering that you did in that show reminded me of The Manchurian Candidate, one of my favorite films where they would have these shots of Frankenheimer and have shots of the film and then you see the TV cameras with the monitors and sometimes you'd see the image on the on the cameras themselves of the same thing going on over there and this layering of forms the technical part of it the technical part of Larry Sanders was as interesting as the personal part you know you know it, I again I did not mention this but one of the you know one of the things that as a pilot director that you really hope to find mm-hmm. is you hope to create an image or two that becomes yes. kind of like a signature image right that yes. was, that, and and on right, Larry, right, exactly, yes, yes. So on Larry Sanders, the one that I'm most proud of, and it was kind of a puzzle to figure out, was basically a rip torn standing at a monitor, uh-huh. and when he's facing the monitor, but he turns out to the studio audience, and in the background you see the actual desk set where yes. Larry and the guests are. So you see all of that in layers, you know, yes. and 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 that was because in fact the way that the Tonight Show producer, Fred Freddy Cordoba, stood during a taping was not anything remotely like that. Yes. I just decided, I just made it, this is my personal mission, was like, how can I get, how can I create an image where you get ripped, what the camera sees, and mm-hmm. the desk set all in the same shot. So that was my, that's my small little triumph the, yeah. you know, at the beginning of that show. You actually bring up a point where you say it wasn't like that. There's been like a movement um, I'll call it a movement. I don't know if it is, but I'll call it a realism movement or mm-hmm. not even realism. Realism is different. I'll call it a naturalism movement, mm-hmm. which I think is different from realism. Um, but uh, and I think a lot of people that are in naturalism don't understand that there needs to be dynamic action, even though it's naturalism. And there still needs to be some like something doesn't have to be exactly like real life. And that's a good example where style is important. You're not just mirroring something, right? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, it wasn't like I was. I, it wasn't like I just right. tried to copy what I saw. Like this is it, exactly what it looks like. It yeah, has exactly. to look like this. Yes. Yeah. No. It was a. It was a very kind of somebody who knows the Tonight Show uh, might say, "Oh, that it's a very contrived shot. That's not mm-hmm. how the producer would stand." But in fact, it what it did for me, it wasn't simply a, a, a rich image, but it really told you something about Rip Torn's character. Yeah. That he was able to sort of monitor everything. He could yeah. look at, he could, he could actually watch yes. the monitor itself. Yeah. He could turn over one shoulder and look at you know Gary behind the yes. Larry, and then he could look out at the audience. And that he was able to kind of yes. one little pivot be part of all aspects of that show. He's kind of lording over it all. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Oh man, it's so interesting. And you also mentioned uh, in the book and. This is a such a large discussion for directors, especially, well, it doesn't matter, television or film. Working with, I'll say, talent that can be problematic, you know. Uh, and it's not just egos in showbiz. There are a lot of people, and it's not just actors. I don't want to blame actors. There's executives and stuff. People who are just out of control. And it's not what you would call normal human behavior sometimes. And for some reason, 
communication goes out of the window and people can become monsters. Now, how, how, and a lot of people just don't know this out in the world. They, they hear little stories, but they really don't know how often this is the case in showbiz. How, how do you as a director, how do you deal with that, Ken? Because it can be so abusive. I'm glad you mentioned it's, it's, it's hardly just, you know, actors, although yeah. actors, you know, actors sometimes can be very insecure and, and yeah. it manifests itself in not the best way. But, but I, you know, the trickiest part, especially if you're a young director is to realize that it's not personal. It's not mm -hmm. about you. Like if there's a, you know, if there's somebody on a crew who's just really unruly, mm -hmm. you know, they, and, and they will be unruly, you know, at the checkout line at Trader Joe's, it's not about what you're doing. It's mm -hmm. just who they are. So, I mean, part of, part of my strategy is to, first and foremost is to remind myself that, you know, at this, this per with this person's issues have nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Now I have to get everyone on the same page. I have to, we're, we all have to tell the same story. So I do feel at times it's, it's necessary to sort of take someone aside and sort of weather they're you know venting about whatever but mm -hmm. more often than not i feel like if you know what they're venting about is an easily solvable thing uh, something's not working on the set or somebody mm -hmm. hasn't somebody hasn't felt respected or acknowledged and instead of saying something they kind of let it simmer until it hits a, you know, a boiling point so i mean i think a lot of it but 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 all of that's possible once you realize that whatever's going on with an unruly or difficult person has nothing to do with you. You're doing right. you're doing your job well. They're going to be difficult in any other in many contexts, including you know this set. So, and also that uh, you give some good advice about just managing a career and where you put yourself in that career and not taking everything. Uh, you know, just for surface value, like comparing yourself to how well a film does, because you're not that film. You're Ken Kloppis, you know, you're <laughs> right. That, I, that, that's a tough that, one. That, yeah. No, that's the tough one. But that's probably the that's probably the major theme of the book. And mm -hmm. that is that, you know, you, you know, you, we can't control the outcome of things. We can't control yeah. whether someone's going to watch the show. We can't control what the critics are going to say. Or whether someone's going to buy a ticket, or whether your movie's going to open on a weekend when suddenly you know a pandemic hits and nobody goes to the movies, you can't control yeah. these. Things. The only thing you can control is the process of making the thing. That's it. That's all we have. And so, for me, the the way to not get hung up on different outcomes. Look at I've you know I've done things that have been quote successful and i've done other things that have been quote unsuccessful and the quotes are very important there but along the way i've just you know tried my best to keep my focus on process and it means that the ups and downs start to they're just less impactful you know the, the if you're just thinking and what does that mean by the way focus on process so for me it's like um on my next directing job, can I? Is there a, is there some new way that I can you know kind of set a tone or create an atmosphere on the set that makes people feel respected? Mm -hmm. Is there something else I can do that I haven't done? That's just a simple, you know, how can I improve that process, or how can I improve the process of talking to a DP? Mm -hmm. you know, I want to I, I want to be I want to have a more 
I want to be more fluent. I want to be more, uh, I want to re- represent what I want more precisely. That process, you know, I hope to improve from job yeah. to job. So I just have like a whole list of aspects of the of the directing process that I would like to be better at. I mean, you know, yeah. I mentioned in the book, I, I feel like I'm I'm not very good when it comes to talking about costume design. Oh, yes, that was very funny. Yes. <laughs> I don't, it's not, this is not where I live at all. <laughs> but I, but I, you, you just know, nod like, your head a lot. Sure. Yeah. That sounds great. Exactly. Yeah. I, I agree with you. That was a good <laughs> choice. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, I, you know, like next time I'm working on something, I, I think, well, you know, maybe I'll just try a little harder <laughs> to be able to say something yeah. vaguely intelligent about costume design. But, um, so for me, that is actually the 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 kind of the big the big theme of the book, and and it, it wasn't something I knew when I started. That's for mm-hmm. sure. I mean, I, I you know if I if I could meet my twenty something self mm-hmm. right now, I'd I'd you know, I'd say basically you know make sure that you create a yardstick for success that's your own. Don't don't, don't depend on Hollywood's measuring stick of success. And it's kind of partly why I was, wanted to write the book because I've been. I've, you know, I've been fortunate to work with some younger directors, uh, mentoring younger directors. And I, and, you know, younger directors definitely want to talk craft. Right. They also, a lot of times just want to know, you know, how do you, you know, they ask questions about how to, how do you comport yourself? How do you carry yourself in this, you know, uh, unpredictable world? And that's what kind of really what prompted me to start putting things down on paper i thought that these are things that nobody talks about in film school so. I, I thought one of your best pieces of advice i think you talk about it in terms of a meeting is it's okay to not know something oh, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. and to say you know i don't know i've done that so many times in pitches and i tell people that are pitching like if uh if someone says what do you think uh this character where do you see them going in the third season or something like that it's okay to go i don't know i would but <laughs> I tell you this, I can't wait to find out. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. But that is the flip of it, is that your passion for finding out, yes. know, for answering that, yeah, that's the key. It's like, oh, you know exactly. what? I haven't thought about that. Yeah, right. let's figure that out. That's- yes, exactly. <laughs> so always talk in terms of your passion for a project, I think, is good advice that you give as well. Well, it's, it's. I mean, you have to lead with your yeah. passion. And also you have to kind of, for me, the advice I give anyone taking a meeting, trying to get a film made, trying to get a job, directing anything is, is there, if you can kind of bring your personality into the room when you're talking about how much you love it, like if you, it doesn't matter what the, you know, what the material is. And I, I mm-hmm. do mention this, that, you know, I worked on this Netflix show, Santa Clarita diet, right. Okay? Zombies, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know from zombies and, and, yes. <laughs> and, and I've never directed a zombie story, but I, yes, but when I, you know, met on it and I tried to figure out a way to make a human connection to mm-hmm. a zombie and, you know, sort of like I, 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 like I've never killed another person for food, but um, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> no, I know it is. I promise. <laughs> But I but no, but I know what it's like to be like, you know, to have out of control cravings. So I you know, I, I figured out a way how to, how I could make a connection. So if you're you know, when you're meeting on a project, mm-hmm. you know, make a personal connection to it and and, uh, and passion, you know, I'm hardly the only one who says this, but it's mm-hmm. it's the important thing. Passion wins the day every time. 
Yeah. It was, uh, it was great, you know, and kind of was, was, it was very warming for me to read the chapter about us working on the Bernie Mac shows. What was interesting about that and reading it from your point of view is how you didn't relate to some of it, you know, like, like, who is this Bernie? Why is he saying, why is he talking like this? About, he wants to hit these kids. What is he saying here? And I was struck by how that was your way into it was almost from a discovery point of view. Oh, a hundred percent. Because yeah. I, I was so, I was startled by the script. It was yeah. like, whoa, what is going on with yeah. this guy? And also, I want to kill them kids was on the first page. Yes. <laughs> you know, like ever, you know, ever hear a, ever hear a chicken get its neck? Neck cut off, snap. <laughs> Just like that, right? That's what and I'm I, doing and I remember because I remember when I read the script, I go, "Wow, this is the first page of this. Where yeah. is this going?" And and in fact, it was very much a discovery. And it wasn't until meeting Bernie, yeah, that I found a way in. Yeah, that was you know that was literally that you yes. know when Bernie and I met, the commonality was you know parenting. We were just talking about yes. the different parenting things we've dealt with over the years, and it was like, okay, I know what to do now. Yeah, but I had to get there. I wasn't sure at the beginning. It's funny because for me, when I wrote that and watching Bernie's act, because I started from a technical standpoint when I created that show, I had watched the uh, PBS series Nineteen Hundred House, mm-hmm. and where people had to act like it was nineteen hundred, and they had this confessional camera that could say, "I had a Snickers ball today. I shouldn't have had it," you know. <laughs> and, and I thought this is fascinating. This kind of this camera set up to observe these people. What if we did a show where we're just observing, you know, rather than action being forced at us? And I thought it was an interesting idea, but there was no emotional component to it. And then I saw Bernie and Kings of Comedy. I'm like, oh, if I had Bernie in here talking about, you know, trying to take care of his sister's kids because she was on drugs, that's an emotional story that could draw us in. And then you use that confession as his Snickers bar confession that he really wants to kill the kids, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but to me, it was also the fact that that's how Bernie shows love by telling you he wants to kill you. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And yes, it's not an idle threat. He, he will snap your neck like a chicken with his head cut off, you know, but that's his way of showing love. And his journey was to know that, no, sorry, you're. There are a lot of obstacles to that type of parenting. You know, that's your idea, but you don't have kids yet, so you're just going to have to learn. Yeah. Oh, but it's so. I remember when I, uh, I'm sure I told you this later. But when I when I brought home the rough cut of the pilot and I showed uh, it to my wife, she yeah. she was so she loved it. And she goes, uh, she said, you know what, Bernie is so committed to his yes. point of view. Yes. And he's so wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what was enjoyable about it. <laughs> <laughs> he said, uh, I'll beat you like I was your daddy and you'll go to jail like you was my dad. <laughs> but you know, it's so funny because that that um, that moment, which, you know, so many people single out from the pilot of the Bernie Mac show, the, you know, bust your head till the white. Yes. Moment, yeah. mm-hmm. It's that is very much shot in a in a very, you know, mm-hmm. the camera is kind of laid back and observational. Mm-hmm. There's nothing sort of in your face about it. And and. And one of the things I, I remember, and I, I really love that we decided this, is there was no need, to, you know, uh, Vanessa's hiding in the bathroom with right. the door closed. There's right. no need to shoot a shot of her. No. Nope. You don't need to cover her. That's right. It's actually more powerful that we lay back and we just hear her through that door. That's right. 
And there's not even a close-up of Bernie either. Nope. It's a very interesting. I'm very proud of that work because I, of that, that just that aspect of it. I, I learned so much both writing it and working with you in it. Uh, I remember Ken and I, and this was at your suggestion, we watched, uh, I think, Breathless together and I think 400 Blows and, uh, you know, just kind of looking at the cutting style that maybe might be useful in the pilot and some of just the energy from some of Godard's work and that kind of stuff, too. And I thought it was so helpful to go go through that process together as me, showrunner, creating you, director. I, I felt we were like joined at the hip from that moment, you know. It was, I mean, again, for me, it was, it, I feel the same way. And I feel like you invited me to uh, bring my crazy ideas to the table. Oh, it was great. No, I loved it. It was fantastic. It was, but it was like, I, I think I remember saying to someone, oh yeah, Larry and I are going to watch Breathless. Yeah. Like, You're going to watch Breathless? <laughs> for the party Family comedy for yes, fun? Yes, yes, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, people thought I was crazy when I would tell writers about it. But uh, that show was a discovery process for me. And then working seeing you as a director and the way you directed it. And, and when you talk about Vanessa being behind, you know, that door, the notion of constraint in there in the whole pilot was something that was very important to me as well. And I'll never forget, because I remember saying this was a Kubrick shot, was the shot of the guy walking down the ramp to get on the airplane where oh, yeah. we start yeah. with him at the end of the aisle. And there was no rush to get him close to that camera or to move right. that scene along. We let him... I remember seeing that. I'm like, I love Ken so much. He's letting this thing happen where we're just seeing this action. But it also, it gave us the feeling that I wanted in that as well, that this is happening and we're not in control of making this happen faster or at a, or maybe at a pace we want. It's mm. going to happen at its own pace. You know, you know it's so fascinating. I, was, I had a conversation not too long ago with Steve Carell yeah. about walk and talks and shots where you're leading the characters yes and he was saying he goes whenever i do that kind of shot all i think about is am i am i hitting the dialogue at the right point yes you know am i gonna get the all the dialogue in before i hit the mark and what's different about the shot in the bernie mac pilot of bernie and the flight attendant coming down that walkway Mm -hmm. is that they they control the pace of the dialogue yes correct and we just we just lay back and let them exactly right and and so there's such a I mean there's so many people who just love I mean I don't want to get on a high horse about walk no, and talks versus please. static shots or anything but but I do feel like uh, it's a little it's it's kind of wonderful sometimes just to watch people grow in the frame yes <laughs> it's like such a simple absolutely thing, it's great uh, yeah to be a part of that I love uh, uh, I'd love to talk to you briefly about what inspires you right now what do you like to watch I was watching a Queen's Gambit which a lot of people are watching right now and there's I don't know have you seen it yet on uh, Netflix I've just started it so I, I can't report on it yet but uh, I, I certainly know Scott Frank he's immensely talented I'm, yeah. I'm so happy for him in that show um, I you know I, I I've been doing a lot of um, I'm catching up on some directors that I, I'm a little embarrassed to say I, I wasn't all that familiar with, and I'll just mm-hmm. mention this because I'm kind of really blown away. <laughs> this is going to sound so obvious, but I've been watching Kurosawa's films. Oh, wow. Yeah. You have and, to go back sometimes. You go, how did I miss this? Yes. Oh, no, I don't. <laughs> right. And, but, and not only how did I miss this with Kurosawa, mm-hmm. but how did I miss the range of stuff that he yeah. did? I yeah. mean, the range of stories. I mean, yeah. I sort of think, oh, yeah, you know, Jimbo and the Seven Samurai, but no, there's right. like 
there's you know thrillers there's these very kind of human dramas like yeah. so anyways i but mostly i go back and i'm like startled by his visual thinking it's like i'm just sort of like wow what how did he come up with and and it's never flashy yeah but man alive the blocking the way he organizes the frame mm-hmm. um i'm just again it's i feel like i'm getting a fun little master class from this Mr. Kurosawa. So that's, that's what I've been doing lately. Do you feel like you, uh, you're looking at things? I've, I've, this is interesting to me how sometimes when you look at stuff, like you mentioned Kurosawa, somehow it lines up with where you are in your life at times too. When you, when you find things you haven't watched for whatever reason, you go back and it comes to you at the right time. I feel like sometimes. I, I think you're right. I, I can't, I'm not sure that I can say much more about that because it's, it's, I'm in the, I feel like I'm in, you're the, in the process of that now. Yeah. yeah. Well, mm-hmm. partly because I feel like I don't think that I would have decided to do this Kurosawa binge had I not written the book. I feel like the book kind of, op- the book sort of has sent me in some directions that I wouldn't have gone. Yeah. You know, so, so I, I feel like, um, it, it, it's in a way I feel like, oh yeah, this is, uh, I'm watching a Kurosawa scene and go, oh yeah, I was, I was writing about something like this. And so, I mean, I, I, it's sort of, it, it's been a kind of a, on one hand, a, 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 a big discovery and a confirmation of things, mm-hmm. you know, that I've felt. So, and I'm also, I'm always thinking about, you know, because I, I have worked on comedic material a lot, mm-hmm. but I'm always thinking about how, you know, comedic material can, how, how can we, I mean, we did it on Bernie Mac, but how can, what, what new ways are there to think about com- visual comedy? Mm-hmm. How can we visualize things? I agree. Way? I think about that all the time too. And then, so, so weirdly enough, the idea of watching, you know, Yojimbo, which by the mm-hmm. way is a hilarious film. You wouldn't think, you know, I think maybe people do think of it as a comedy. It's very mm-hmm. funny, but I, I think about how to apply lessons from, you know, people like that to like if I'm doing a half hour show. Yeah. You know, what can I bring to what can I bring that people haven't seen in a half hour show? Yeah. I'm always thinking like, what's not on television right now, you know? What why why should I be putting this on TV right now? Not mm-hmm. is this a funny idea or whatever? Like I'm always thinking of that as well. And I like to go back sometimes too. Like like right now I'm thinking of multi camera shows because not a lot of people are doing it. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not so much from the technical standpoint, but more in the actor relationship standpoint. I think there is a lot of wealth, and maybe because I've started in theater, there mm-hmm. to me there's a lot of wealth to be mined in actors acting together on a stage to create life, you know, and and behavior and that sort of thing, which kind of went away a lot you know with a lot of the multi-camp sitcoms they became so rote and a lot of like the observational behavior of shows like all in the family and some of the great 70s even cheers you know the way sam and diane interacted was so observational about relationships you know yeah and i think that i mean again the the key is is just getting you know writers together who can think about behavior i mean that's the key thing you know so i mean it feels like there are so many shows that um just in terms of how this multi-camera shows that ended up feeling like there was one camera per character. <laughs> everyone, <laughs> yeah, I know. Everyone sure. just sort of found a mark and sort of said their lines. Yes. So the idea of being able to uh, reinvigorate, I mean, look at, there's, there's so many 
exciting things that can be done to reinvigorate multi-camera, including just thinking of it as in a completely non-presentational way. People are doing it. It's not like it's, it's not being done, but I think that uh, there's probably new ground to break with that. And it's funny, uh, you know, another one of Ken's uh, pilots that he did, famous pilots, was, of course, The Office. You mentioned Steve Carell. Now, that one to me was, and I worked in The Office in those in that first season, too, which was a joy also. But that one is a tough one because I know that they wanted to do the English pilot first, which, you know, which, uh, you know, was suited for that particular audience and that sensibility. And it's a little different than we might do it here. But did that come from the network or something, the thought of doing that? And, and what was what was the most difficult thing about that process with Greg? Because I know uh, when uh, Greg Daniels sure. working on the pilot of The Office with Steve Carell. I mean, when I when Greg asked me to do the pilot, the script was already written. So right. I wasn't I wasn't a part of the original decision to kind of hew close to the the British pilot script. Right. And, and um, but I think on some level, Greg felt um, it would be a better springboard than sort of having to kind of essentially reinvent, you know, kind of kind of come up with a different premise. Okay. And, you know, and I think that, um, I mean, frankly, you know, a lot of people at the time sort of said things like, well, the show, the, you know, the American office took a while to find its footing. The pilots, pretty strong <laughs> the pilot's yeah. very strong and the second episode of course diversity day it it's just like a that's a peak episode so <laughs> yes, it's like, yes. <laughs> that was so much like, fun I, i've definitely talked to some people even people who worked on the show said oh yeah we peaked at episode two <laughs> it's like yeah it's such a, so <laughs> yes. I, I i'm always a little defensive when people say oh yeah they took a while to find well it, it, we took a while maybe to find a, an audience but Boy, yeah. the show was in, in in great shape right from the get-go. Oh, the, the tone was there immediately. I mean, right. Steve was a little darker in the beginning, and I think Greg lightened him up in the second season a bit. I think uh, that what Greg did also in terms of story was make sure that uh, for you know for every boneheaded thing like Michael Scott said or did, he yeah. also had like a redemptive moment. Yeah. So that you know, and and I think it sort of created this a, a different balance as as opposed to like in the pilot, like the mm-hmm. climax of the pilot is you know Steve's character just humiliating. So horrible. Character. No, it's horrible. And, and yeah. there's no, there's no redeeming, no redemption at all. It's just horrible. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, I think that I think that Greg, uh, you know, put a lot of energy into figuring out a balance that would yeah. allow Michael Scott to to do and say things that were highly impolitic, and yet still, you yeah. know audience would cut him some slack. So. I think the biggest challenge of that was on the English version, their series, they only do six a year and they only had two of those in the Christmas episode, which is like 13 episodes total. When you think you have to do this for 20 something episodes a season, you have, there are different problems that come to the fore. You can't have this character oh, like I know. That for that long, you know. I, and, <laughs> and, you know, all credit to Greg and Steve. Yeah. But especially Steve, to, because I feel like Steve never stopped looking for new avenues into yeah. that character. And, and yeah. you know, I've said, I've said this before. I didn't mention it in the book, but I'll say it here. And that is, you know, I used to, like, get to the set super early. I wanted to yeah. be the first person there. And I, you know, plan my get my shots in order and all that yep. steve was always there first 
He was always there. He was in Michael Scott's office. The door was closed and he was like working on it, working on his stuff for the day. And, and again, what I just love watching his work over the course of the show is that he, he's constantly trying to invent new things. So he's not coasting. Yeah. It's so great. But what I really want to do is direct the book from Ken Kwap is lessons from a life behind the camera. There's so much good stuff, guys, especially your Christmas season here. You know, you got, we're maybe going into another lockdown. You need some stuff to read. There's great stories in here. I don't know why I'm laughing about that. <laughs> There's you know, great philosophy. Ken, as I said, is just one of the best out there working. Um, Ken, what, what kind of things, are there any stories that you feel like you want to tell right now or that do you have like things that are in front of you or are you more the type of person that you're doing a project and then something comes in front of you, you go, oh, wow, that looks interesting. What, what type of person are you? I mean, I, I try to do a bit of both. I mean, there's mm-hmm. definitely two or three stories that I've been eager to get off the ground. But I also like the idea, again, of being surprised by a piece of material that I wouldn't think, yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought of, or a genre. I, I, I mean, I'd love to do, I'd love to do a musical. Wow. I'd love to do something that's maybe a little more overtly political. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not sure what that means. That's a whole other conversation. What would the costumes be like in that musical, Ken? Suck <laughs> <laughs> wardrobe. I'll, I'll, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll give you the uh, costume designer's email. <laughs> oh, now something political sounds interesting too. Oh, what, yeah. Why are you drawn to those two things? Interesting I'm, genres well, for you to go. I'm actually. I mean, I love musicals, mm-hmm. and I'm also I'm kind of excited about something in the political arena, in the post-Trump era. Like mm-hmm. what, I'm not sure what that means yet, you know, in right. terms of, you know, it, it, obviously as, you know, comedy creators, we talk about c- comedy drivers. Well, what's yeah. going to, what's going to be a great comedy driver in, right. a, in a political story in the post-Trump era is something that I, I've been yeah. just thinking about. I don't have, I wish I, I don't have a great pitch, but I, <laughs> I've, it's been on my mind though. So. Yeah. It could be the search for a devil. We need a devil. <laughs> we don't have a devil. <laughs> There you go. There's the show. <laughs> There's the movie. Uh, well, Kim, thanks so much. God, I could talk to you forever. We're already, I think, an hour. Oh, wow, this is so but fun. There's so much great advice in here, too, you guys. I have to tell you, I love your whole thing about the different types of meetings that you have and the different <laughs> types of people. It's so awesome. It's so true, too. You know, And that could go for business, not just showbiz, you know, of what what you have to put up with as a person interviewing, you know. I, I would definitely, uh, I, I definitely have experienced all of those bad meetings that I described. <laughs> yes. Multiple times. <laughs> yes. Well, wishing you the best. Guys, go out and buy the book. Trust me, if you're, uh, especially somebody who wants to do anything in the business, but what I really want to do is direct, just gives you uh, so much. And all the classics are in there, guys. Larry Sanders, The Office, Follow That Bird. He said, she said, by the way, which was also a great thing to, uh, you know, your take on that. So interesting. Collaborating with your wife and everything. So much stuff. Well, Larry, thank you. This was such a pleasure. And please, I hope to see you not virtually sometime soon. Yes, <laughs> hopefully. Ken Coppice, everybody. Thanks again, Ken. All right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>